Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. I'm KQED in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Farm, is it possible that the U.S. Constitution is fundamentally undemocratic? That's what legal scholar Jedediah Purdy argues in his new book, Two Cheers for Politics. And just as the title suggests, Purdy doesn't want us to give up on politics either, which he sees as not optional if we're to keep working on the experiment of democracy. We talk about the Constitution, reforming politics, and other ways we can create a more perfect union with Jedediah Purdy. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Our Constitution, seen as foundational to establishing our nation's democracy, is, in Jedediah Purdy's eyes, too fundamentally anti-democratic a document to serve democratic purposes reliably. That's a quote from his new book, Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. Well, Purdy is with us today to explain what he means and how he thinks the Constitution can be fixed and why it would lead to a more perfect union in his eyes. He's professor at Duke University Law School. Jed Purdy, welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks, Mina. I'm glad to be here with you. No, we're glad to have you with us. And, you know, kind of a counterintuitive thought that the document establishing our democratic system actually stands in the way of Mm. democracy. So can you break it down for us? What makes the Constitution itself undemocratic to you? Absolutely. So maybe it would help to start by saying um, what what democracy is. I'll be quick because it's something that could occupy (laughs) the whole hour. But let's just say um, that it means uh, at a 10,000 foot level that the people who live with the fundamental decisions we have to make about who owns what, about what the terms of our jobs are, what employers can do to employees, um, whether abortion is legal or publicly funded, excuse me, is forbidden, you know, prohibited or publicly funded or something in between. Questions that matter and questions where there is going to be a decision that the people who um, carry the consequences of that decision ought to be the ones who make the decision as well. And then when you zoom down to institutions, the idea is that since we, of course, don't agree about any of these things, and that's part of the reason there has to be a decision um, that the best stand-in for saying that the people who live with it decide um, is the vote of a majority of all of us who live with the decision. And that Mm. sounds very um, uncontroversial, 
maybe, maybe very obvious, um, but I think it has a few radical implications that jump out almost immediately when we think about it. Um, one is that it was not democratic uh, when twice in the last couple of decades, roughly, the loser of the national popular vote became the president. Um, one is that it was not democratic when the question whether there is a fundamental right to reproductive autonomy, whether there's a right of corporations and rich individuals to spend unlimited amounts of money in political campaigns, whether those rights are, are fundamental in our system was decided by majorities of the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, third, it's not democratic that of the people who have to live with our decisions, um, a few tens of millions are unable to vote in the process um, because they're disenfranchised or because they're non-citizens making their lives here who've never been enfranchised in the first place. Um, so the first two of these, um, our uh, anti-majoritarian presidential election system and our anti-majoritarian way of deciding what the constitution means through the Supreme Court are both written into the constitution itself yes. through the electoral college, the Senate, um, and the court. Now, let me, let me stop there, but I hope that's given a little bit of a sense. If we just take an, a basic idea of democracy seriously, we start running up against contradictions across our system, and some of those are baked into the constitution itself, and certainly they're all tolerated by it. Yes, they are baked into the Constitution itself. So because they are baked into the Constitution, is that what you mean when you say the Constitution itself is undemocratic because of the systems that it lays out? Because one of the other points that you are making is that it's mm -hmm. also undemocratic because the Constitution itself isn't very easy to change. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So there are really two layers here. One is that some of what the Constitution says um, and the processes it sets up are um, designed to thwart democratic action and um, they succeed. Uh, James Madison famously said that one of the things the Constitution accomplished was the total exclusion of the people in their collective capacity from government, which means that Democrat, there are no um, direct democratic decisions anywhere in the system. And the kinds of counter democratic institutions that we've been talking about are all examples of that. But Mina, you go right to the heart of it. There's a deeper problem, um, which is that we don't have any straightforward way to change the allocation of senators, the structure of the electoral college, or the role of the Supreme Court because the constitution announces fundamental law, it announces in its first three words, we the people, that the rest of the document is authoritative because it's been adopted by national, by majorities acting in a special constitutional capacity, a special mm -hmm. form of constitutional politics. And we can talk more about yeah. what that is, but I'd love to. And then it shuts it down. That's, it makes it almost impossible to change. And that means, I, I'm sorry to speak, here, I'll just uh, 
they finish the sentence. Um, that means almost by default that when we disagree about the meaning of this very powerful, brief, and older and older document, um, the decision is is going to be somewhere, and it turns out to be uh, mostly with the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, we do have an amendment process, but but can you just remind us how hard it is to change Perfect. our constitution? Right. Um, and sorry, Perfect. I actually interrupted you, Jed. So no worries. Thank you. No, I, I'm 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 interruptible. I go on too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes. So it is possible to change the Constitution. Um, there's an article of the original document devoted to that, Article 5, uh, which I mentioned so that we can refer to it later. Um, and it has two stages. One, to get uh, proposed constitutional text um, into the running. It has to be either proposed by a two-thirds majority of both houses of Congress, or it has to come out of a convention uh, that is called by Congress, that is Congress says, let there be a constitutional convention on the petition of two-thirds of state legislatures. That's just to get the language out there. Then for new language to be added to the document, the language has to be approved by both houses of at least three quarters of the state legislatures, which means that a small number of state legislatures in the in the teens, um, small number of states can effectively veto any new proposed language, which means uh, both that the constitution doesn't change really. We haven't had a meaningful constitutional amendment in 50 years. Um, and it means that when constitutional law changes, it changes through the Supreme Court, which is to say through the politics of judicial appointment and the control of judicial ideology, the kinds of politics that the Federalist Society and the whole judicial appointments um, process uh, foreground. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit. But before I do, let me just invite our listeners to join the conversation. First, I'm really curious if listeners agree with your premise that the Constitution is fundamentally anti-democratic in a way that actually doesn't serve democratic purposes well. And if there is something they would change about our system of government or, or add or delete from the Constitution and why, you can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, giving us a call at 866-733-6786. One of the key things that you pointed to um, when you were talking about how our system has basically created some pretty anti-majoritarian results. You've pointed to the Supreme Court. Can you, you, you started to talk about this a little bit, but just draw a direct line uh, or the line that you have drawn in your book to uh, a constitution that is hard to change, a constitution that puts itself out there as extremely authoritative, leading to a tremendous amount of power given to judicial interpretation and therefore the Supreme Court. Great, absolutely. Um, and this is, 
the answer to your question is an example of something I think I would like to say generally, modifying a little my own strongest statement about the Constitution. I think the Constitution is not democratic enough. And the ways that it's not democratic enough um, reward anti-democratic political strategies. Um, we will maybe talk later about how the current Republican Party is, I think, existentially committed to a minority rule strategy, at least at, at this point, um, and some of the distortions involved in that. But to take the Supreme Court as an example of this phenomenon, because the Constitution announces that no law um, that is not um, downstream of it, basically, uh, um, is a valid law and sets up a lot of broad and vague guarantees uh, of things that the government can't do in the language of lang terms like due process, equal protection, free speech. I alluded earlier to Citizens United, the other campaign spending cases, which are free speech cases, um, and uses these very broad terms to define these guarantees. It is almost certain that people who don't like the results of the political process are going to come to the court and try to get a second bite at the apple. Um, and that means that political conflicts get pushed into judicial interpretation and judicial decision-making, which is to say ultimately the vote of nine people turns out to be the final forum for some of our most important questions. And as you sort of allude to earlier, the vote of nine people that are unelected and determined by a president who isn't always elected by a popular majority. We'll have more with Jed Purdy after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me tell you what we're talking about Friday. Dressing for extreme heat is not as simple as wearing as little as possible, especially when you have to go to work or to court or a wedding. And many of the fabrics that are best at cooling aren't necessarily climate friendly. So we want to hear from you. What clothing choices are working for you during the heat wave or are you finding it surprisingly hard? You can email forum at kqed.org or tell us in a voicemail ahead of the show if you'd like, 415-553-3300. Today, we're talking with Duke University law professor Jed Purdy, who has a new book out called Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. And just before the break, we were talking about 
Whether or not our Constitution is democratic enough, in Purdy's eyes, it isn't. And you, our listeners, are weighing in at 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org. I want to just talk a little bit more about the power of the Supreme Court that's given by uh, a Constitution that's very difficult to change and some of the other uh, factors of our governing system that it lays out. But one of the things that you do discuss is how it really gives originalism in a way, its legitimacy, if that's a good way of paraphrasing <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what you mean. But can you talk about the power that originalism holds with this particular framework that we have related to constitutional change? It's such a great question. Um, I, I appreciate it, especially because a lot of my fellow progressives see originalism as, as just ancestor worship and just a a form of right-wing politics. And there's something to that. Um, But it's also true that because the official theory of the constitution on its own terms is that it takes its authority from democratic action, ratification, there's something cogent in where originalists always started. Justice Scalia, in his, in some respects, somewhat unhinged dissent from Obergefell, the 2015 marriage equality decision, has this very poignant uh, passage where he says, under, according to this decision, my ruler is, and the ruler of the whole country, is five justices of the Supreme Court, and that's not the way the Constitution is supposed to work. Um, And the idea that he was appealing to is the Constitution doesn't change unless there is a democratic ratification procedure to change it. And then it does. And it's not the job of judges to change fundamental law, politically appointed, politically connected, but but not very politically accountable. Now, this is always much easier to see when you disagree with the result. Um, Scalia didn't like the marriage equality decision, even though he claimed not to be bothered by it. Uh, And it's a lot easier for progressives to see when an originalist inflected decision like Dobbs, the case overruling Roe v. Wade, which was not strictly originalist, but but had that flavor, um, takes the same line. Um, the, The basic idea that the Constitution shouldn't be changed by any means except the uh, means set out in its own language, the ratification procedure that it offers has a real kind of cogency. You can see that um, if the alternative is that the uh, five of the justices give it whatever meaning seems best to them, that doesn't seem very attractive unless you happen to disagree with them all the time. So originalism makes a kind of cogent appeal to the idea that the Constitution's authority is rooted in popular democratic action, where it's in bad faith, and I think it's in deeply bad faith, uh, even setting aside its uh, ideological skew, um, is that it doesn't acknowledge that, as we said before, Article 5 of the Constitution makes democratic action to adjust constitutional meaning almost impossible. And that means that originalism appeals to an impossible alternative in attacking the judicial interpretation that originalists don't like.
Yeah. But then at the same time, if you wanted to interpret it as a living document, how do you know how to interpret it if you don't know how people feel or how people would change what the Constitution says if it's so hard as well? Right. This is exactly, exactly the difficulty. The progressive response to originalism, um, sometimes more uh, full-throatedly than at other times, um, has been a stance called living or evolving constitutionalism. I, I should say as a sort of, as a an insider to the world of law, that these days most living constitutionalists are a little shy about it because it's politically uh, been under attack for, for a long time. Uh, but it is basically the alternative to originalism. And even a Republican justice like Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the Obergefell opinion, takes a living constitutionalist view. He says the meaning of ideas like liberty and equality changes. It changes through the culture. It changes through people's lived experience. And the role of courts is to see what new insights have emerged and to put those meanings into the Constitution's fundamental law itself. Um, there's a clear way that this is also <clears throat> right. Just like originalism, this idea appeals to a democratic idea, which is that the Constitution is no law unless it is the law of the living people who have to bear its consequences. Uh, there's a deep way that that's right. The problem is that, just as you said, filtering what that means through the vote of five justices means that you you can't be sure, of course, that you have, so to speak, got it right. But even more to the point, those five justices are going to be the object of tremendous and always uh, sort of oligarchic kinds of, of political pressure. And I don't mean I don't mean bribery, I don't mean pressure on the individual justices. I mean structural pressure on the process of selection and appointment of the kind that has created the current, um, 6-3 conservative majority and the ideological um, principles that it, that it brings to the court. So, so living constitutionalism is in a way what we're stuck with. Really, both liberals and conservatives practice it. They just have different ways of articulating mm -hmm. it. There's no, there's no other way with a constitution that can't change. But it is um, both, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, it's both an inevitably oligarchic politics because it depends on the votes a few people, and it's one that picks up a lot of other anti-majoritarian skews in the system because the justices are appointed by the president and ratified by the Senate. And as we were saying, those are both institutions that reward minority rule strategies. Well, a couple of comments just related to the Supreme Court. Leslie writes, could not at the least be a limit to the term of a Supreme Court justice, say, 28 years rather than lifetime. Pete writes, to the extent our Constitution is authoritative, it is exacerbated by Supreme Court ideologues who capriciously embrace the fallacies of originalism and textualism, talk about distortions. So a couple of related points. But let me go to caller Christine in San Francisco. Hi, Christine. Hello. I have uh, one comment, which is that I agree that the Constitution was designed to not be democratic. At the time, uh, the Articles of Confederation had been quite a failure, and I believe that 
and I think this is shown through the Federalist Papers, that the key to getting a new constitution was corralling these 13 original colonies with, you know, vastly diverse sizes, interests, slave versus free, small versus big, etc. And we now find ourselves, so I think that was the key there. Now we find ourselves in a position where most of the population resides uh, not in those small states, which still have the electoral votes, the two senators, and, and all the other you know, accoutrements of their original power, and that goes back, admittedly, to 150 years or more. But now we're in a situation where in the last 20 years, as the professor noted, we've had two elections where the person who won the most votes didn't win the electoral college or the presidency. And my concern is that that can't go on forever. Mm. And my question is how, under this oligarchic system, if you want to call it that, might that change absent um, going to something, changing the the structure of states? Uh, Uh, Christine, yeah, sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Christine. You raised a lot and a lot of really important points. So, so let me give Jed Purdy a chance to to respond to them. Thank you for the call. Great, and Christine, thank thank you for that, and thanks also uh, to the uh, listeners who sent in the emails you you read from Mina. I think actually the first um, email is part of a, a response to what Christine says. So let me take take that as. Uh, um, take that in the following way. Uh, we could think of a sort of um, ascending uh, stair step of um, sort of fundamentalness in the in in our strategy for engaging the problems that we're talking about. And the the less fundamental or the less radical way of engaging it would be to try to um, re-engineer the Supreme Court's operation itself in some ways that make it a little less susceptible to the kinds of partisan manipulation that uh, that it has uh, been, um, such as by um, limiting the justice's role on the court to 28 years. The uh, person said 18 years is often mooted because 18 years would mean that in each four-year term, each uh, president would get to appoint two justices rather than the kind of uh, macabre lottery that we have now. And and, um, I think that's a good idea. There's some debate about whether it would be constitutional. I think it would be, although I say that well aware that I don't get to decide. I'm not one of the the nine people who get to decide um, and neither is probably anyone listening listening to this. you could also uh, try to work around the related uh, anti-democratic features of, say, the Electoral College. Um, there's an effort afoot, um, which many of your listeners will probably know of, to um, change the Electoral College actually through state legislation in sort of a complicated but I think constitutionally valid way so that the Electoral College majority would go to the winner of the national popular vote. It's a good idea. Um, I I argue in the book 
that we should actually be trying to press to change Article 5 itself, that is to make the Constitution open to amendment by the living generations that have to live under it. And I have some thoughts in the book about what that might look like, which um, we can definitely talk about. I'll just say, rather than go into all of them now, um, that I think the reason to consider that kind of direct confrontation is that it, it would represent a return to saying the fundamental law is supposed to be our law, and we are the people who are living here now, all, all of the people who are living here now, not just a subset of the past. Um, and I think it's the most honest and direct and in a certain way potentially inspiring way to confront it, to say that we make the Constitution ours when we have the power to decide whether it stays the same or mm. changes. Um, and I'll say super fast as a caveat that anything I say about how we should do it or whether that's the best way forward, I intend to say in a spirit of, of humility and of starting a conversation, um, these are conjectural and, and high-risk things. Um, a lot of people will, I think, be alarmed at the thought that we should be having uh, constitutional amendments or constitutional conventions. And in a way, I mean, I would want to sort of honor that response and say, well, let's yeah. kind of, let's start, let's start there and, and talk through um, how, how we should think about this thing. Yeah, well, certainly there are, there are reasons to have something that is difficult to change when you're establishing a new order, I suppose, right, to create the kind of stability and consistency that one might need. Uh, but at the same time, let me just read a few of the comments that we're getting from listeners that are, again, related to some of the points that you're making. David writes, for example, I couldn't agree more with your guest. I'd like his feedback on considering how self-serving our system is. Our lawmakers are disincentivized to change it. My question is, can it fix itself, which is an interesting question. I, I do want to mm -hmm. also just take one call yeah. from John in San Francisco, I think around your point on the Electoral College. John, go ahead. Thank you for waiting. Thank you, Kim, for having me. Um, yes, I just wanted to continue to speak about the Electoral College, um, and it's been a point for reform for a while now. Um, we have 538 electors, one for each representative and senator, and, and the 270 majority is typically what decides the outcome of a national election. Now, uh, ma the majority of states do have party block voting, which I think is both a good and a bad thing. Uh, me, just at, anecdotally, uh, coming from uh, Alabama and Texas, um, coming from Birmingham and from Austin, where it's a kind of a blue dot within a red state, um, I oftentimes have felt misrepresented uh, or I have not felt part of the democratic process because I didn't feel like my vote actually mattered because of that party block voting. Um, but at the same time, you have states like Nebraska and Maine that, mm -hmm. that don't have mm -hmm. that um, where they can be influenced, um, like we saw in the previous election, where, where they can be uh, have pressure from the executive branch um, to to go against their constituents even. Um, so I think uh, you know there's there's something to be said about reform um, in both areas uh, with party block voting as well as as uh, the pressure that can be felt from the executive branch. John, thanks. So your reactions, yeah. Jed Purdy. Yeah, <clears throat> great. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks to both David and John. Um, I think uh, I'll take them in reverse order, John. First, um, I think John raises a, a really fundamental question and one that no political system can escape. 
um, which is that um, the political majorities that that our systems compose um, are always artificial. Um, there's it, it, politics doesn't um, turn on natural facts. It turns on artificial facts that are created by the system itself, like how people get to be senators and how many senators there are and, and so forth. Um, even voting majorities depend on voting criteria. Um, they depend on what counts as a valid ballot. They depend on the borders of eligibility. Um, and so you always have to ask questions like, do you have uh, what's called uh, first past the post system? It just means that the, the um, candidate with the most votes wins. Um, we don't have um, proportional representative representation systems at the national level, such that you might get uh, minority parties represented in, in small but real numbers because there's a 15% you know, of the public that wants to support them in lots of different places. And we don't have multi-member congressional districts where, for example, you know, in a, in a heavily blue uh, region, you might get two or three Democratic uh, representatives and then one Republican representative. And these sort of different ways of, of composing your uh, government are all kind of valid ways of trying to use votes and institutions to translate public sentiment into, into institutions. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for uh, different, the, the virtues and drawbacks of, of different uh, design strategies. And I really appreciate John sort of pointing us to that. We shouldn't think of our own system as natural or as the only uh, form for translating public sentiment into into majorities. Um, to, to but, David, we all, but we also yeah. are just coming up on a break, Jed. So I'm just gonna have to stop you there, but you can finish your thought afterward. Again, Duke University Law Professor Jed Purdy. More with him after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just a note uh, that we're following in the news today that the royal family has reported that Queen Elizabeth II has died. She passed away peacefully in her she passed away peacefully. She was 96 years old. Today we're talking to Duke University law professor Jed Purdy about the US, about our constitution and how in his view it is not democratic enough. And you our listeners are weighing in on what you think in terms of the Constitution, our system of government, 
what needs to change to make it more democratic, if you believe it needs to be. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786, You were about to comment on, on David's point. One of the last things that David had asked Jed Purdy was, can this system fix itself? And I think it's a really fair question because you were just talking about all the different ways that we we enable or not, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, people to be able to weigh in on the political process, people to determine how it is that they want to be led and for majority voices to be heard and represented. Because the reality of our situation is that, you know, one of the points you make in the book is that democracy is basically ruled by equals. But we as a nation have never seen everybody as equal nor treated everybody as equally valid in weighing in on how we should be governed. Yes, 100%. So... I think there are really two, at least two levels to that theme. Um, the first is operational, and the second is in a way more profound. Um, it's almost ontological to use that word. It's sort of how we are and how we understand ourselves to be as a people. Um, so David says, can you get something really different from the system, out of the system, or does it just keep reproducing itself? Um, I think there's a little bit of reason for hope in political history. At times, there has been fundamental constitutional change achieved through political processes. This point pushes a little against my saying that the uh, amendment process is impossible. The amendment process is very difficult and we live in a political culture in which most people, the mainstream, and certainly liberals and progressives, have thought of constitutional changes happening through the courts and not through democratic action. But when we look back, we can see, for example, that the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed early in the 20th century, and took, it it created the direct election of senators by popular vote. Before it, senators were actually appointed by state legislatures. When you think about this, this change had to go through state legislatures. Three quarters of them had to approve an amendment to give up their own power to appoint senators and two thirds of senators had to vote to propose it. Uh, And that meant they had to vote to change the system that had gotten them there in the first place. Um, Astonishing that that happened. And at least part of what happened was that two years before it went through, uh, I think 10 senators were voted out because they had opposed it, then there was a serious electoral movement to do this. Yeah. So it, it, it's not totally out of the question and it won't happen if we don't think of it as something that, that can happen. Um, I think the reason that we should be aiming at changing the fundamental terms of the constitution itself is that it shouldn't take absolutely heroic effort of that kind. And that's why if we make a heroic effort it should aim at making the constitution itself more democratic so that the barriers we have to climb in the future are not so high. Um, now, Mina, I couldn't agree more with the with like essential second point that you raised, but I feel like maybe I should stop and see if you want to take us somewhere or bring someone in, or we could, we could talk more about that theme of being equals right now. Whatever yeah, well, it's kind of related, but 
I guess the Constitution, as you say, was amendable. We did do it in the 20th mm. century. And so the question for me is not so much is, well, the question is, does the Constitution need to change, right? Or is it that we, it is impossible for the kind of electorate we are now, we're so divided, we are suppressing people's ability to be able to participate in the vote again on levels that haven't been seen for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an us to form a majority around? Are we capable of that kind of a majority? And <laughs> would we be happy with what that majority even comes up with? I just feel like there's so yes. many things that make what you're proposing with regard to being even more democratic really, really fraught. <laughs> I, th- this is absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely right. Um, and I worry about it a lot. Um, I'll put it this way. I, I don't worry about it in the sense that I think that for these reasons, we will get it wrong, because I think we won't get to the point of being able to get it wrong. I think um, the more immediate likelihood is that none of this will get off the ground, because fundamentally, people m- dislike, mistrust, and fear, and resent one another enough across partisan lines, especially, that they would much rather on the whole live with a system that's more or less predictably broken than take their chances on a system that is more actively democratic. Um, Mm. I think it's possible that that's true. Um, I think the thing to appreciate about that is that it's not a permanent fact about us. It's a fact that is actually produced by our politics, sort of recursively. The politics we're capable of is a matter of who we are culturally and so on. And that is in important ways a product of, of our politics. Even the, um, the in, two quick examples, the, a lot of the really intense version of aversive partisanship, fearing and disliking across partisan lines, has been cultivated as the engine of a minority rule strategy by a Republican party that doesn't need to win national majorities to win um, control of national government. Um, And the response is, it's not surprisingly, it's a response that sometimes replicates the same same tenor and feeling. Um, So, to the extent that you create the ground for a different sort of, a different path to political power, I think you potentially feed back into changing the political culture itself. But it's still possible for Uh. the political culture to be so broken that it can't can't do it. I guess the other thing I would say, and I'll, I'll say it quickly, is that often liberals and progressives and centrists have given a more positive spin to what I was saying about how we're afraid of each other enough that we'd rather live with a predictably broken system. And that's that we've said, look, it's not perfect, the system, but at least it prevents the tyranny of the majority. I would say we're seeing now that it doesn't really, it doesn't really, it facilitates minority tyrannies. And I mean, everything from the electoral college to the um, Supreme Court um, without actually doing anything much to protect things like voting rights or basic terms of equality in in social membership. Um, So 
any sense that it was like a second best but good enough, I think is harder and harder to sustain now, which makes the, the risk of a constitutional politics, I think, more plausible. Well, there are a couple of comments I'd, I'd like to read. Eric asks, what are some actions individual citizens might take to make the system more democratic? Look forward to hearing some of these and hearing his recommendations for further reading. Randy writes, I'm glad to hear your guest mention voting. The ranked choice voting method is used in Alaska and in several localities mm -hmm. throughout the United States. It's a great mm -hmm. step towards restoring true democracy. So do you want to get to some... Uh, I, uh, you mentioned earlier you had some thoughts and, and we we uh, said we would get to those um, and that, you know, you with some humility, some of your recommendations, but go ahead and offer them up. Our listeners would like to know. Oh, <clears throat> great. Um, so... Here's, here's an idea to start a conversation. Um, every 27 years or so, every, every generation, there ought to be a constitutional convention. Um, the convention shouldn't just arise from ordinary partisan politics, because if it did, it would be absorbed back into it and just sort of replicate it. Um, the convention, uh, that proposed the language then should be um, staffed by a combination of uh, people elected in a special electoral procedure, a special a special vote, um, whatever our eligibility criteria for voting are at that time. And I believe parenthetically that as a democratic matter, whoever is making their lives here ought to be able to vote, I think that's a basic democratic principle, but whatever the criteria are, they should be more inclusive and more expansive for this vote. Um, some of the representatives should perhaps, to the convention, should perhaps be chosen um, by lottery, um, like a jury system, to ensure the representation of or, uh, uh, a diverse set of everyday experience. Um, and, the, there should probably be multiple stages in the convention, maybe regional conventions followed by a national convention to filter any proposed changes to give us a certain amount of, if you will, normalizing. Um, and then any changes that the conventions want to propose to the constitution should be put to a national vote. That national referendum would be the only direct national decision under our current system, and it would decide whether or not to add new language to the constitution. The, the, these conventions would set the tempo of our political life, and they would mean that each generation would have affirmed and chosen in some real way the fundamental law that it lived under. Um, that's something that we can sort of work back from if we think it goes too far, but that, that's a kind of utopian democratic horizon that I would like us to, to consider and, and steer toward, not least because it uh, takes the idea uh, that the constitution should be more democratic and more fundamentally democratic than the rest of the system and that that's what makes it fundamental law completely seriously. We're talking with Jed Purdy. His book is Why Democracy, sorry, Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
a lot of comments coming in. Let me keep going with these, uh, though I do want to talk a little bit about how we run things in California, because you do note, uh, you do note that we do have ranked choice voting in some mm -hmm. places. We also mm -hmm. have what a lot of people see as a more direct demo mm -hmm. democracy in a way with the way that we do our propositions and so on for better or for worse. It mm -hmm. hasn't really worked here. Uh, we have a redistricting commission that is mm -hmm. and made up of independent folks and so on. And so would love your assessment of that. But let me just read a couple of comments that have been related to some of the points that you have been making, just to give our listeners a chance to be heard. Kyla writes, I feel the electoral college versus popular vote scheme is also a gateway drug for political parties, because once a party realizes it can take power with minority with a minority of the vote, it is just another small authoritarian step to start extreme gerrymandering or purging voter rolls or other ways of suppressing the vote. Jess writes, things to change, remove electoral college, term limits for judges, no lifetime appointments, expand or adjust the House such that lower population states, states aren't overrepresented on a per capita basis. Bill writes, to work, democracy has to assume citizens who make rational decisions. We now have more than a century of proof that is not the case. The reason politicians raise so much money is to purchase ads that manipulate the public in non-rational ways. And Chris writes, the Constitution in language is focused on protecting rights, but in structure for protecting property and wealth ownership. And that is continued, as your guest suggests, by Supreme Court justices, who are the only realistic vehicle for changing the Constitution. These justices come overwhelmingly from wealthy backgrounds. Who else has the means and connections to go to top-tier law schools and get clerkships? Lastly, the current state of the presidential election is incredibly unfortunate. I'm all for preventing the tyranny of the majority, but tyranny of the minority is no better. So again, our listeners weighing in on a lot of the points that you have been making. Um, and you have also been trying to talk about solutions. You talked a little bit about your idea for a constitutional convention. Are there things that are going on right now that you see as very healthy for democracy or being more democratic? Is California doing some of those things? Great. <clears throat> um Thanks, uh, Mina, to you and, and to your listeners for everything you just channeled. Um, so as, as a general matter, I think the um, nonpartisan redistricting commissions um, are, are a good thing. They have this ironic quality that because they've tended to um, be used in, in democratic states along with um, along with uh, some judicial decisions in democratic states that have, have taken issue with democratic gerrymandering. They've sort of, from a hard partisan perspective, represented a modicum of unilateral disarmament from the democratic side, because we haven't seen any inhibition about super gerrymandering from the Republican side. But I think as, as a matter of principle, um, they, they are good. I think there's no doubt but that hyper-sophisticated 21st century gerrymandering is very bad for translating uh, popular attitudes into, into uh, practical control because they really do let minority uh, control uh, persist at, at, in states like North Carolina, where I am right now, and, and Wisconsin and lots of others. Um, a lot of people think about the California initiative system with some alarm when I talk about a national referendum and, and so forth. And I think I'm inclined to say a huge part of the problem is in 
how the questions get defined and get and get onto the ballot. Um, mm-hmm. One of the long-standing criticisms of democracy that is really quite profound, and one of one of your callers uh, channeled this, is that the people is a clumsy sovereign that can only say two words. It can say yes or no, basically, um, or it can look at a ballot and say him or her. But elections can't can't. Uh, ask very complicated questions. Um, They can't handle very complicated answers. So it's incredibly important who sets the agenda for the election itself, which questions are presented and in what form. And my impression as a non-Californian has been that um, moneyed and um, special interest control over what goes on to the ballot and how it's framed in the initiative process has been a huge driver of the problem. Um, And that's why when I talk about a constitutional convention, I really want to emphasize sort of layers of institutional design that are intended to make the process representative and as deliberative as possible so that what goes before people is not just something that Alec or an idiosyncratic donor thought would be good. Well, we are running out of time. And so I do, though, at the very end, want to ask you why more democracies are best open. If you could do that in 10 seconds, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we were at the end of the hour. Yes, um, because there are decisions that we have to make. We can't avoid deciding about abortion, about affirmative action, about what we're going to do about climate. Even a non-decision is a decision. And any way of deciding that isn't democratic will skew things in favor of the status quo and it will skew things in favor of the privileged. Democracy has a class bias, which is for the people who live and work and worry, and we're the ones who ought to to hold the power over over any others. Jedediah Purdy, thank you. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.